Our text today is 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Last week we looked at the prologue of John's epistle, first epistle, first four verses. So we'll pick up at verse 5 today. And as the fellows have mentioned, it's the fundamentals of full fellowship that we want to discuss. Just a bit of review. We, last week we uh, talked about Gnosticism and how it's beginning to arise in the latter part of the first century. Gnosticism uh, comes from the Greek word, uh, a Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And uh, the Gnostics were, they really began the end of the first century and really began to uh, grow as a group in the second century and they continued down through this age. And there were a group of people that said that they had attained to a superior esoteric knowledge over and above the apostles and even the scriptures that are written at that particular point in time. They had a higher experience, if you will. And uh, of course, that's where they get the word gnosis. They knew more than everyone else, they thought. And they were seeking to infiltrate the church to teach their doctrine, which they knew was the right doctrine, so to speak. In general, Gnosticism, uh, and there are all kinds of variations, and even down to this age, but in general, Gnosticism holds to a strict dualism. You have spiritual, and you have material. And the spiritual is always good, and the material, or matter, is inherently evil, always evil. And thus, in a Gnostic mind, the two were never mixed, could not be mixed. One is good, one is evil. Uh, and of course, if you accept the Gnostic doctrine, uh, believe what they believed, which is heresy, of course, then it makes the Christian doctrine of the incarnation uh, reprehensible. That could not be. No way there could be anything such as the incarnation of God, holy spirit into man, totally, inherently evil. Two basic groups, really, a whole lot of them. Uh, the Docetic Gnostics, D-O-C-E-T-I-C. The Docetic Gnostics, that came from a Greek word meaning dokio. Dokio means this. It means seems, S-E-E-M-S, seems. So, the Docetic Gnostics said that Jesus only seemed to have a physical body, but he did not have a real body. The Serenthian Gnostics, another group, they were not like that. They differed with the Docetic Gnostics in that they believed that the man, notice the emphasis now, the man, Jesus, had a physical body. But... He was born like all other men, the results of conception between his mother and father, Mary and Joseph. But they also believed that on this man, Jesus, who was a good and a moral man, the Holy Spirit descended upon him, or the aeon, as they called it, aeon, if you will, on Jesus at his baptism and departed just prior to the crucifixion. Because, now this is in their mind, in reverence to God, God could not die. And thus he was not on this man, this normal man, and he could not say during the crucifixion, so he was just there to anoint the man Jesus doing his earthly sojourn and ministry. A result of all of that is this. They both denied the virgin birth. If you deny the virgin birth, obviously you deny the incarnation. If you deny the incarnation, then you deny the whole eternal purpose of the crucifixion. So it all is a sack of cards and it falls down there in the light of Scripture. John is dealing with those folks. And there's some others. But we know from what he writes, and particularly in 2 John 1, 7 is a verse there, where he says that many deceivers are out there. That's those guys, the Gnostics, who confess not 
that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. And that's an antichrist, he says, a deceiver and an antichrist. I'm sure if you've done any talking about your faith anywhere or witnessing around, you had the same experience as I have had through the years and say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yes, I, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. Now, I want to tell you, that becomes a real problem up front. And it's a wonderful opportunity, by the way, because the word Christian was given first as a condescending title to those shirts, to those of the way in Antioch. Those are the ones that follow that Christ guy, Christian. And so here's a guy that says he's a Christian, believes in God, but he doesn't believe in Christ. Then you can say, well, wait a minute. Christian means follower of Christ. So you're following somebody you don't believe in, and that's your religious expression to a God whom you say you do believe in. So John writes uh, to his believers then and to the believers today, you and I, to instruct us in right doctrine, to encourage us in the true faith, and to be ready to give an answer to those who would say something different concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and his purpose in our lives. And he said, basically, you Gnostics weren't there, but we were. We heard him. We saw him. We looked upon him. We contemplated him. We watched his every move during these old three years of earthly ministry. We saw him, and you guys weren't. Therefore, we write and we declare unto you what he shared and told us. That's the review of the first four verses, so to speak. By the way, just an interesting, I don't know, if you have a King James Bible there, there it gets down to the point in verse 2. Verse 2 is a parenthetical statement, okay? From verse 1 bridging, bridging to verse 3. For the life was manifested and we have seen it. The it is an italicis. And an italicized word means it's not in the original Greek manuscript. Sometimes the italicized words are really wonderfully helpful. I don't like that one particularly. Now the subject is this. Christ Jesus the Lord. He was the word of life. He was the eternal life that was with the Father. Okay? Give you that. And John is speaking of that life that was manifested to them. And the translators here, wanting to be helpful, put that it in there. And it bothers me, that it, because we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the word of life. He is the eternal life. And he was the one that is with the Father. And another note, going down to uh, verse 4. These things we write unto you that your joy may be full. Now some uh, translations will have our joy instead of your joy. New American Standard is one of those. And that's not a big issue one way or the other doctrinally. Okay? John writes that our joy may be full. Directly to us, he might say, if he were standing here, your joy, but it matters not. Because you go over in his other letter and he said, I have no greater joy than this, than to know that my children walk in truth. So it really matters not which one you have. I like the your, personally. And that's what the King Jimmy has. Now, keep in mind that these five verses, five through ten, these verses are not salvation messages. This is not a salvation message. This is written to Christians. He says over in another page there, go over to the next column, I'm writing to you fathers, and I'm writing to you young men. You know the truth. You knew him from the beginning. You know the truth, etc. The word of God is in you, and therefore you've overcome, you see. So this is written to Christians. This is not telling you how to be saved. This is telling us how to walk because we are saved. Let's read our text. 1 John chapter 1, 5 through 10. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light 
and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Or say, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his truth is not in us. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we love you and we love your word. Every syllable of it, Father. And Lord, we're so grateful to you for dozens upon dozens, hundreds of things. Now, Lord, we just want to say, Lord, we're grateful for your word, that you preserved it for our instruction, that we can look through the lens of Scripture and see thee down through the centuries, how you dealt with Israel, how you're dealing with the church, what's coming in the future. Lord, thank you for this blessed book called the Holy Word of God. We're grateful, Father, for it. Lord, we want to saturate our souls with it. We want it to fill our minds and our hearts that we might be thoroughly instructed from your Holy Word and completely understand all, Master, that you have for us to understand to equip us, thoroughly equip us, to be thoroughly furnished to serve you and our generation. To that end, Lord, we submit to your word and to you in your leadership. Holy Spirit, wear us like garments that we might soak up everything that you have to say. And Lord, hide me, hide me, and reveal thyself in the mighty name of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this then is the message. Let's look at that eternally existing message. The English translation really doesn't bring out the emphasis of the little word is. That is is important. <laughs> and I can't, every time I say, when I was studying this week, I was thinking about that. I remember what Clinton said. Well, what do you mean by is? Well, what did John mean by is here? What did the Holy Spirit mean by is right here? This is what's important right here. And there's not any gray matter in this. This, this word is puts the word emphasis on stress. It stresses it. This ex- it means like the sense exists. This exists. This message is the one that exists. Okay? Now, that's important. So think about that. This message exists. It stresses the importance of the message. But it also stresses that this message is not new. And this message is not temporal. It stresses the timeless significance of the message. This Specific message exists. It's not arbitrary. Not subject to change. Not subject to modification down through the years at any time. And the key to that is this. The message did not originate on planet Earth. This is the message. And this message is about God. And it didn't originate on planet Earth. And it did not originate with the apostles. This is the message. John identified the source of the message as far as the earthly sphere is concerned. This message, this truth about God has always existed, always has been. It was revealed. Certainly we look in Romans and God revealed himself in Romans, it tells us, in creation. To such an extent, there's not an infidel out there that refers to themselves as an atheist today 
that is without excuse. No one is without excuse because the glory of the handiwork of the Father as he revealed himself in creation is sufficient to testify unto him. But as far as this specific message coming here now, John identifies the source of it. This is that message, that eternally existing, unchanging message that we heard from him, identifying, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, declared in person by the Lord. Now, in essence, the apostles had this message revealed to them in three ways, really. One preceded the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, the Old Testament. There's all kinds of references to God is light and so forth. Psalm 36, 9, for with thee is the, is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So there he is. It's thy light, O Lord, that I see light. It is thy light, O Lord, that becomes my light through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a glorious thing. And then it's a light unto my path. The word of God, the light of God coming through the lens of scripture is a light unto my life, a light unto my path, a way of my salvation. And it never changes. The essence is the light, the existing message, the light of God. So they certainly knew it from the Old Testament. And anyone else would if they read it. Secondly, they heard it from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, though, they saw it lived out. Uh, a little uncomfortable almost saying this because he knew no sin in his flesh. They saw the Lord Jesus Christ flesh out this message of life every day all the way throughout his earthly so turn. And God is no darkness. So there wasn't any in the Lord Jesus Christ either as they carefully contemplated him. So there exists this message. Now what all is the content of that? Well, there's just one aspect of it here. And that's this. This is the message. Verse 5. That God is light. And in him. There's no darkness at all. But record order I like real well. Now, look, you can do this too, okay? I'm not a scholar or the son of a scholar. <laughs> but you can do this. You can get an interlinear, and you can get one for your computer, or you can get one you can hold in your hand. And that has the Greek and the English, okay? And so one's above the other. And so here's your English translation. Here are the Greek words right here. And it doesn't make a difference if you read that or not. You can pick up a few things as you go along. But the word order, you can get the word order that's in the Greek. And sometimes I really like it to read it. This is the word order of that sentence I read in the Greek to you, that verse. That God light is. That God light is. Notice the is. And darkness in him is not at all. God, light, is. And darkness in him is not at all. What you have? You did have a double negative in the Greek. It says there is absolutely no darkness in God. He is light. God, light, is. But you know, light's not one of his characteristics. And you say, wait a minute. What did you just say? I'm going to say it again. <laughs> Light is not one of his characteristics. It's not one of God's characteristics. He's not a light bearer either. However, he created light. Genesis 1-3 tells us that. But God is uncreated, self-existing light in its totality. You can say, well, you know, that's one of his characteristics. Well, it's not one of his characteristics. His whole characteristic is his light. 
light. That means light is God's essence. Internal, invariable essence. And that's this message that exists. God is light. That's God's essence. And there's no imperfection. And there's no darkness. There's not even a speck or any shadow. He is light. 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul, speaking of God, writes, God only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom he be, whom be honor and power everlasting. He is light. That's his essence. And it's light of the, such the magnitude and the purity of, no man can approach it. Boy, that could create a real problem for us, could it not? If this God who is light were not a God of mercy. You can't see him and you can't approach the light. You know, I thought of this as a silly little story out of my experience. But you know, it hit me that this, I I have ridden through the years bicycle lots and lots of miles. And I had a little 12-mile track out there at Hideaway, through the, up and down the hills around. That I'd ride four or five times a week when I had time. And sometimes it, I'd be so busy during the day pastoring out there, I wouldn't get to do it until night. So I had me a light on the back of it or a light on the front of it. A little light on the front of it was about that big around. And the tires are about that big around on the road back, too. So you have to be careful you don't hit pebbles. Jonathan uh, can tell us about hitting something and breaking a collarbone. But so this little light, it was dark, real dark, and I was riding, and I was way over on the east side out there, and uh, I came back up to the street, uh, the main street there, which is Hideaway Lane East, and to get on there, and I stopped the little sign there and started out going north on Hideaway Lane East, and around the curve up there came this car headed toward me with the rights on, real right. Now, my light is a dandy little light. You know, it'll shine out there on the, in front of me so I could see things that would cause me to have an accident, you know, in the road. So I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to wait right here because those lights are so bright. So I just stopped there on my bike, and I was sitting on my bike, and this car came up to me, and this stopped. And this woman rolled down the window, and she just fussed at me and fussed at me. She said, your light is so bright. I can't see you. Now, I'm pastor out there, right? And I'm trying to be somewhat pastoral, so I didn't tell her what I was thinking. But I was wanting to say, lady, did it ever occur to you that I'm behind the light? I can't see you for your light. Your light is too bright. I couldn't see her either for hers. But you know something? I was behind that light in the dark. And everything outside of God, apart from his intervening grace, is darkness. Total darkness. So God revealed himself in creation, certainly, but he didn't stop there. Light is his essence, and light just has that tendency to manifest itself, doesn't it? It's using an earthly term. It's God's grace that chose to manifest himself. What well, we know, light manifests itself. There's a little light under the edge up here, and it manifests light on the desk. You can shine, you can take light into darkness. Have you ever tried to do the reverse? Have you ever opened the door to let the dark in? It doesn't work that way, does it? Light dispels darkness. And it revealed perfectly God's essence. That God is light. Was revealed perfectly in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1.18, the gospel, chapter 1, verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Jesus Christ personally revealed 
the light of God to humankind. John 8, 12 said, I, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but he shall have the light of life. The Nicene Creed was written in 325 A.D. in Nicaea. So I'd call the Nicene Creed, of course. But it has this neat line. I like the way it says this, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. It simply says this, God from God, light from light. That's, that's simple, isn't it? And profound. God from God, light from light. Now, it puts this in here. We will remember, as I said earlier, that this is not a salvific text. In other words, this is not a text how to be saved. Okay, it's not. This is written to Christians. People, you and I, folks that are already Christians. But I want to say this. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 speaks of the regenerative work of the Father, whose very essence is light. And what He does in the hearts of His elect... And bringing them to salvation. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, you want to turn there. Much as God did in the work of creation in Genesis, He did in the elect's heart and shall do in the elect that are yet to be born of Him. A lot like that. And the spiritual creation, as He did in the first creation, He what? Said, let there be light in the darkness and there was, right? In spiritual creation, he brings light to the hearts of those living in darkness under the dominion of darkness. That's what regeneration is. God brings light. That quickening, that enabling to see the need of a Savior and to see the person of the Savior 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the new creation. Same type of work with light, so to speak. God shining into the darkness. Now that's salvation, right? Let's get back to the case against Christians. <laughs> this is dealing with us who already know the Lord. The case against sin in Christians. 1 John 1.8. If we say you have no sin, what are we doing? Deceiving ourselves. We're not practicing truth. The truth's not in us if we say that we have no sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There's not a, man, a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Not a one. Not a one. All of sin to come charge of the glory of God. Romans tells us. Now back to this word order stuff in verse 8. The Greek word order. If we should say that sin we have not, ourselves we deceive. If we should say that sin we have not, ourselves we deceive. You know who else we deceive? No one. No one. Guys, if you think you're without sin on a particular day, ask your wife. She'll set you straight. <laughs> if we say that we have not sinned, that sin have we not. Notice now, in that, in the Greek that I read, and the English that we read, the word sin is in the singular. In the singular. Now we all know that we can commit one sin. Just one. And we probably all, if you're like me and Roger back there, wish we had just committed just one sin. <laughs> just one. Okay. But the issue here, but the issue here, this is not a funny subject, but I've just... Roger and I were talking earlier. The issue is, and this singular use of sin is not all the sins we committed, but the principle of sin. 
It's the principle of sin that is in you and it's in me and everyone born of woman because of the fall of the race and our first father, Adam. The principle of sin abiding in us. Paul had something to say about that. You might want to return to this. Uh, turn to this. I'm going to read it. It's Revelation, uh, Romans 7, uh, 14 through 23. Here's what Paul says about that principle of sin. It's in him. Was in him. He's in glory now. And it's in us. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For in for the will is present with me, but how to perform it, that which is good, I find not. Verse 19, for the good that I would do, for the good I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. The law of sin. That singular word sin in verse 8 is dealing with that. That principle of sin that is inherent in all of us because we inherited it from the first father, Adam, and the fall. Now, I want to tell you, the Gnostics reading this right here was say, I told you so. I told you so. There's the spiritual side of Paul, and there's the fleshly side of Paul. And so his spiritual side is not affected, but his sinful side is just his flesh. And some of those Gnostics use that as a liberty or to, to live a licentious life. Oh, in fact, I read a guy that quoted He said, look. He said, your spirit redeemed. Okay. Your flesh, if you send some, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Because that gave them a licensee not to be physically accountable for the things of the sins of the flesh. Heresy. And that's not what Paul meant. You know that from reading his words. One, of the, one commentator wrote this about sin in verse 8. Sin singular, is personified <clears throat> as a destructive and depraved principle acting, actively reigning over the lives of unbelievers and persisting in believers. Sin is personified as a destructive and depraved principle persisting in believers, especially as a slave master doling out payment in the currency of death and decay. Seems to kind of cool wide with what Paul had to say. The problem is with this sin principle that we got and we're going to have until we lay aside this robe of flesh. The problem with it is this. It's planted in us and our Flesh is fertile, fertile soil. That's it. This principle of sin is planted in the fertile soil of our flesh. That's why Paul struggled. That's why I struggle. That's why you struggle. Unless <laughs> you ain't human. Remember Archie Bunker, Edith? He, Archie was complaining to Edith. She was always so nice, always so kind and accepting, you know. And Archie said, 
you ain't human. Archie, that's not a nice thing. Well, you're not human. You're always so nice. She said, Archie, I am too human. He said, well, well, prove it by doing something ugly. You don't have to prove it, do you? The flesh is in us. That's why the Word of God tells us the gospel truth that death is the victory. It is. Death is the victory. But you know the glory of it? God in Christ Jesus has given us the victory over sin and that death and decay that it doles out daily right now in the lives of the unbelievers. And today, if we live what we're called to live, we can live above that line of disobedience, death, and decay. So take a look at verse 8 again. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And if we ever said we had no sin, we'll be deceiving ourselves. I don't care how much you go spiritually. You may have a mountaintop experience. I may have a mountaintop experience. But we can never say we have no sin. And the only time we could ever say we don't have any sin or no sin as a principle, it would be the day after we died physically and we're home in glory. It's inherent in our robe of flesh. This principle of sin, this law of sin, though, results in the production of sins, plural, right? That's a given. Planted in the fertile soil of our flesh, so here's sins, plural, that we commit. If we confess our sins, verse 9, he says, sin is in the plural form. What is that? That's the fruit of the root. The principle of sin is in us, planted in our fertile soil, and so the fruit Root in fertile soil produces fruit, and that's our sins, plural. The word confess is a, hom- is a word homologeo, H-O-M-O-L-O-G-E-O, homologeo in the Greek. Confess, it's a present verb. It means to continue to confess. It's regular action moving forward, confessing our sins. It comes from a word, though, the word, the root it comes from is homologos, Homo logos, okay? Homo logos. Now, we know what homo means, right? We got it everywhere around us now in the news, all this mess going on. Homo logos. It means to be of one mind. It means to speak the same thing. It means to agree, to acknowledge with another the same thing. That's what confession is. Confession is that. It's agreeing with the Father. We're not giving the Lord information when we confess sin. He already knows that. And He knows them one by one. But when we confess this present tense verb carrying us forward, reminding us that we're continually confessing our sins, we are continually agreeing with the Father concerning our sins, what He already knows. He already knows it. We're just agreeing with that. How often do you do that? How often should we do that? According to the Lord's instructions in the model prayers, daily. Matthew 6, 11 and 12. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. It's a daily deal. It's a daily deal. Now, keep in mind, we're not struggling to keep our salvation. Our salvation is paid for in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved and secure. That's positional salvation. Okay? We have it. We're not trying to keep it. But we're trying to walk in a way that we're intended The fact of our nature makes it impossible to say we don't have any sin. 
But the presence of sin nature guarantees that we have sins to confess. And if we have sins to confess, then the scripture says that we are to be continually confessing those sins. And what does it say? If we continue to confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And you know what the faithful and just is referring to? That's the covenant. That's the new covenant. Faithful and just to forgive our sins because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us and we can't be tried again before the judgment bar of God and cast into hell because we're sealed in the day of redemption. So he's faithful and just in root the glory to forgive us of the sins we are confessing. What are we doing when we're confessing? We're disagreeing with him. Disagreeing with him. My mama could read me like a book. And she'd say, my nickname was Butch. She said, Butch? I said, yes, ma'am. There's no use talking about it. I knew what it did. She knew what it did. And I knew what was next. <laughs> Correction. Now, there's a, you see a lot of parallelism in the scripture. It's a, a fruit, a part of the Semitic way of writing. But look at verse 7 and 9 you see a parallelism there, excuse me. Verse 7, if we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay? Now, notice the first part of verse 9. If we confess, is that a conditional statement? Yeah, that's a conditional statement. If we confess, it speaks of a possibility, a potential for us to pursue. If we do it, if we don't, nothing happens concerning our daily sins unless we confess our sins. If we confess, remember, confession is agreeing. So we're agreeing with the Father this morning, tonight, whenever, during the day, Lord, I'm agreeing with you, that was a sin, and I confess it exactly what it is. It's a sin that I committed daily. Now, what is that doing? If we're earnestly confessing our sin, ladies and gentlemen, we're demonstrating a heart of humility before our Father because we know that sin grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit of God and we don't want that. We will be right with the Lord and we're demonstrating that our heart is humble before Him as we confess our sin. A humble heart. But you know something? <laughs> Your confession and my confession personal confession now. I'm not talking about you confessing my sins or me confessing yours. But our personal confession has to be based on what we know, right? Now, sometimes you've probably prayed this. I have too. Lord, this is what, I want to confess this sin, that sin, the other sin, and whatever. And then all that stuff I didn't realize was sin. Lord, I confess that too. You probably have done that. I have. Because I want to be right with him. And you want to be right with him. Oh, this song we love to sing, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. Let's write us another verse, okay? Count our many sins, confess them one by one, and it will surprise us just how many sins we have done. Here's something that we need to remember. Confession is not the dumping of a batch file by a single keystroke of confession. Okay? I'm going to say that again. Confession is not the dumping of a batch file of sin by the single keystroke of confession. It's not like going to bed tonight and saying, Lord, forgive me of all my fallops today in my mess. In Jesus' name, amen. You know what that is? As we have individually taken steps in our minds, our thoughts, our words, our actions, our interactions that were sinful against our Holy Father, 
one by one we did these things and we said, Lord, here it is. Followed after all that and go, that's disrespectful and irreverent. Lord, I sinned this way or I sinned that way. Confession of our sins. We confess them as we committed them one by one. Now here's the blessing that comes on top of all of this magnificent grace. It says in verse 9, the last phrase, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you realize, ladies and gentlemen, that when we're praying and confessing our sins one by one, and indeed the Holy Spirit might come along and beside us here because he brings to remembrance all things. That's what Jesus said of him, right? And you've had that experience. And he reminds you of another sin or two or three that you weren't thinking about at the moment so you can confess them one by one just like he committed them as well. And having done all of that, do you realize there's still this sin principle and a whole host of unrighteousness about us that has no concept really of how bad it is in front of a holy omniscient God. But the Lord sees the humility in our hearts. He hears us pour out our hearts in confession of these sins and delineate every single one of them and even naming those the Holy Spirit brought to our minds. And then it says, if we confess our sins, he'll forgive our sins. And what? He'll cleanse us. (laughs) Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's like him saying, this is a secular term, I'll catch their slack. They named everything they could think of. They named everything that they put, every failure that the Holy Spirit brought to their life, hearts and minds. I'm going to cleanse them from everything else they're not even aware of. I'm going to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. If we confess, He'll cleanse. Not just forgive us of our sins we name, but he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Boy, you talk about a marvelous, amazing, matchless grace. That is grace. That's grace. That this God in Christ Jesus came to redeem you and I from sin, paid the price on Calvary's tree, went through that horrific, tormenting experience for you and I. And then realizing that we're but dust and this sin nature in us still continuing. Name them to me one by one and I will take care of the rest. I'll cleanse you and I'll keep you cleansed from all unrighteousness. I want to close with a couple of things. One, in verse 7, it says that our fellowship, we'll have fellowship one with the other. Okay? Look at it. We'll have fellowship one with the other. One with another. More often than not, that's preached and taught that speaks of fellowship with each other. And that's okay to an extent if we realize that the only reason we have genuine fellowship with each other is because we have fellowship with the Father first. But this context drives this differently. This is not speaking about fellowship with each other. If you look at that verse 7... If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. But look up at verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him, it's talking about fellowship with him. Walking in light, we have fellowship with him. Now, could it get better than that? Can you, is there anything you can think of that's better than walking with the Father and the fellowship of the light? The context drives the meaning. If we confess our sins, all of them, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And then we, with everything within us, denying the flesh, we take up our cross and seek to walk in the light. We can have fellowship with him. Waverly, my wife, and when our little babies were coming along. You know, Waverly was a perfectionist, you know. <laughs> and she'd get those little scooters and she'd bathe them. And I mean, that little, those little gentle wash rags and her Q-tips and 
all those little fat wrinkles and whatever. And those, those little rascals were meticulously clean. And it became a, she started this, the first one, it became a family tradition. We never planned it that way, it just happened. You know, there's little baby blanket, thin things you kind of put over her head and wrap them up in. She'd have them all squeaky clean, and she'd bring them in in her arms and lay them in my arms. And say, all clean, Daddy, all clean. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what daily confession and cleansing does. It presents us to the Father and says, here, Father, all clean, all clean, and I'm ready and looking forward to walking another day in the fellowship of light with thee for your glory and honor and praise. That's what confession does for us, ladies and gentlemen. In the name of Jesus, it's paid for. In the experience of walking with him, we can see how he walked. And in our failures to walk in him, we can confess where we stumbled. And the Lord says, do that, and I'll cleanse you. I'll cleanse you from all your sin. And we can have intimate fellowship together day by day. Lord, there's no one like you. There's just no one like you, Holy Father. No one like you, Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, goodness, we want to be like you, Lord Jesus. We want to walk as you walk. Lord, quicken us. Keep us in step. Because we're looking for that day when we shall see Jesus as he is. In the meantime, Father, we will be pleasing unto thee and be as close to you, Father, as we possibly can be. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.